hppodcraft.com. This week's episode of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast is sponsored by Tome of Horror, the collected dark fiction by David Maurice Garrett. It's a collection of stories that he's written over the years. I've read a couple of them, as have you. Yeah, I have. It's great. They're great stuff. It's uh, definitely Lovecraftian influence, but uh, he kind of comes off with his own monsters and things. It's not mythos stuff. Yeah. And a lot of it takes place in Alabama. He told us he kind of wants to be the Lovecraft of Alabama, which I think is commendable. <laughs> it's a great uh, setting, and it's a great part of the country, and it's very spooky down there. And there's a lot of local legend that he incorporates into his story. And it's all in the best kind of uh, weird fiction tradition, I think. Yeah. Something that people should definitely check out. Absolutely. David's got a blog that he keeps updated with various musings called Visions of the Dark. Yep. We'll put that up on our show notes. We'll also put up the link to the Amazon.com page where you can download the ebook. Or you can get it uh, in the good old Dead Tree format for $19.99. Check it out. That, again, is Tome of Horror, The Collected Dark Fiction by David Maurice Garrett. I was shown into the attic chamber by a grave, intelligent-looking man with quiet clothes and an iron-grey beard who spoke to me in this fashion. Yes, he lived here, but I don't advise your doing anything. Your curiosity makes you irresponsible. We never come here at night, and it's only because of his will that we keep it this way. You know what he did. That abominable society took charge at last, and we don't know where he is buried. There was no way the law or anything else could reach the society. I hope you won't stay till after dark, and I beg of you to let that thing on the table, the thing that looks like a matchbox, alone. We don't know what it is, but we suspect it has something to do with what he did. We even avoid looking at it very steadily. Those were the first few paragraphs of the evil-looking clergyman story. <laughs> it's, just, it's just the evil clergyman. <laughs> Did I... I... <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down the evil-looking clergyman. <laughs> <laughs> the Evil Clergyman by H.P. Lovecraft. You're joining us here at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, I am Chris Lackey, and with me... I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And uh, today we're doing a double feature. Yes, we're doing two stories of the Evil Clergyman and the Evil-Looking Burial Ground. <laughs> no! <laughs> the other one is the Horror at the Burying Ground, right? Yes, the Horror at the Burying Ground, and that was H.P. Lovecraft and Hazel Heald, but actually just ghost-written by H.P. Lovecraft, poor Hazel Heald. These are both very short stories. They're both, um, you know. <laughs> what are they, Chad? <laughs> <laughs> Neither of them is that great, although no. I was really amused by both. Yeah, well, I I can't say that. I wasn't really amused really? by either of them. Well, <laughs> this first one, let's get into this and get it over okay, with. I had a really good life. time reading it, but sure. <laughs> you did, really? The Evil Clergyman? Yeah, this one not so much. Well, this is a this is Lovecraft relating a dream to some, this is. isn't even a, something he published. So no. it's it's one of those things where I'm not even sure if it's fair for us to be reading yeah. it, you know, because exactly. he never intended this for publication. What's no. the background? It is a dream. Yeah, it was an account of a dream that Lovecraft wrote in a letter to Bernard Austin Dwyer. Also talked about that in a letter to Clark Ashton Smith that said mm -hmm. some months ago I had a dream of an evil clergyman in a garret full of forbidden books. 
That's all he says. Well, I know that uh, Dwyer had urged him to write a story based on it, and he never did. But Dwyer sent the description to Weird Tales after Lovecraft had passed away, and it was published in the April 1939 issue. That's right. And you can see in the way that this is written that he's saying, I remember it as being this, or I seem not to know where I was. So he's recounting it the way that you would recount a dream to somebody. Yeah. Even though it's got dialogue in it. It's very similar to Thing in the Moonlight in that sense. Well, let's get let's get through it real quick since it's a short Absolutely. One. So uh, in that opening paragraph, we, we had there's an unnamed narrator who is the dreaming H.P. Lovecraft, as, as best we can figure out. And this guy with a beard comes up to him and says, hey, don't mess with that that little box on this table in this room where there's all these old books and they're magic type things. And the guy leaves him in there by himself. Yes, yeah, these attic chambers. Yes. And Lovecraft pulls out a <laughs> he pulls out a flashlight, but it's not a normal flashlight because he's got a normal flashlight in his other pocket. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this flashlight shoots out like a purple beam. And yeah. the the violet beam uh, sort of makes this little glass dark box sort of spark and glow and, and do some weird stuff. Now, this is everything that the man who brought him up here, he said, leave it alone and don't. Yeah. Mess with that. Don't touch it. Don't mess with it. He's doing exactly what he was told not to do. Exactly. He says he knows the town was not London, but his impression was that it's a small seaport it's in, in England somewhere. Speaking of English, by the way, who's our reader today? Who's it? Our reader today is uh, my father-in-law, Michael Ford. All right. Keeping it in the family. Keeping it in the family. Yeah, he's got a, a great voice, as you heard. And yeah. uh, this story takes place in England. The next one doesn't, but I figured, you know, why not get him in there? Uh, you know, he's a storyteller. He is a storyteller. A very good one at that, actually. Yeah. All right, cool. So he shines the uh, weird particle device at the thing on the table. It kind of sparks and glows, and then this guy just kind of is in the room all of a sudden. And he's <laughs> right. He's the tall, thin, dark man, and he's dressed as an Anglican priest of some kind. <laughs> yeah, my favorite. Okay, so it's saying what he looks like. He's apparently about 30. He's got an olive complexion, uh, well-cut black hair, heavy growth of beard. This is the sentence that cracked me up. It said, his build and lower facial features were like other clergymen I had seen. But he had a vastly higher form. But what? His lower facial features are like other. Cl- huh? I don't know. Like, oh, you know, Kevin, he's got those clergyman lips. You know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't realize that there were uh, similar physical characteristics in clergymen, but now I know. Just the lower facial features. They yes. all have the same mustache, chin, right. and, and mouth. Yeah, absolutely. And this guy, also more subtly and concealedly evil looking. <laughs> <laughs> Concealedly. Concealedly evil looking. Concealedly. But if he's evil looking and it's concealed, how can he? This thing makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> but it's in a letter. It's in a letter, so I can't. And it, well, it's a dream. This priest starts taking these books of magic and weird occultism things and starts throwing them into the fire. Yeah, and then all at once, there's other people in the room suddenly. Yeah. As well. Uh, grave looking men in clerical costume. And one of them has the bands and knee breeches of a bishop. So they're in here watching him throw those books away. And there's some kind of disagreement, but the, he can't hear what they're saying. It's almost like he's watching, watching, but he can't hear what, what's happening. Yeah, they hate him and fear him somehow. And, and at some point he uh, reaches out with his left hand toward the small object on the table. And that freaks all of these people out. And then they go away. So as soon as they were there, he points at that thing on the on the table and they all split. The bishop being the last one to go. So this guy, uh, now that he's there by himself, he pulls out a rope and throws it over a rafter and he's going to hang himself. The narrator goes, like, oh no, I don't, I don't do it. Don't hang yourself for some reason. As he says that, the guy stops and looks at him and then kind of gives him an evil smile. A look of triumph. A look of triumph, yeah. 
And then H.P. Lovecraft, the dreamer, gets so scared that he pulls out his, his magic flashlight again and shines <laughs> it at him. And it scares the guy. He backs up and falls into the trap door. And then this is where everybody was coming out of before, was yeah, this trap door. It's like a little port in the in the floor yeah. that leads down the stairwell. He falls backward through it. Yeah. And so he falls down through it. And then the Lovecraft goes over, looks down, and he's not there. He doesn't see anything. Instead, there's a bunch of people coming up with lanterns. And there's, it's not quiet anymore. It's suddenly there. It sounds yeah. like real people. And the, the, apparently, it's a couple of simple villagers who come up and they look at him. Yeah. And one of them goes, ah, it be easier again. And then they turn and they, they run around. Did I say that right? I mean, yeah, it's you again. And they, they split. And then the man who brought him up there comes up again. And he says, oh, I told you. Why, why didn't you leave it alone? And he says it happened. This happened once before, but the man got frightened and shot himself. I don't want you to do that. But something really strange and terrible has happened to you. But it didn't get far enough to hurt your mind and personality. Somehow he knows that. Yeah. I don't know how he would know that. I don't know. But if you keep cool, he actually says it. If you keep cool and accept that you got to make some changes, you probably got to go to America. Yeah, move away. You're going to have to change your life and stuff. You're going to get a shock. Nothing you will see will be repulsive. So that sounded kind of like a come on to me. You know? <laughs> hey, this is going to freak you out, but but, but don't worry because you actually look kind of good. Wait, have you have you used that one before, Fiverr? <laughs> yeah. Have a look in this mirror, baby. You're not going to see anything repulsive. I can see that. <laughs> Well, so he approaches the mirror, right? Uh, yeah, and uh, and this is this is what happens. I was now shaking with deadly fear, and the bearded man almost had to hold me up as he walked me across the room to the mirror. The faint lamp, i.e. that formerly on the table, not the still fainter lantern he had brought, in his free hand. This is what I saw in the glass. A thin dark man of medium stature, attired in the clerical garb of the Anglican Church, apparently about thirty, and with rimless steel-bored glasses glistening beneath a sallow olive forehead of abnormal height. It was the silent first-comer who had burned his books. For all the rest of my life, in outward form, I was to be that man. Oh, no. Oh, no. He looks like a different person. How horrible. This is just the treatment for (laughs) face-off. Oh, dude. We saw face-off together years ago in the theater. I was so angry at that movie. You just laughed. You thought it was funny. It was Breezy. We saw it with Breezy. It was you and me and Breezy. And you guys were just laughing the whole time, and I couldn't find any humor in it. I was just so angry. Now, did you have a similar reaction to the story? I did. I did. No, I didn't. Because <laughs> I found it really amusing. No, I did not really. Honestly, Face Off, I was so angry because it was so completely preposterous. In that movie, right. they just moved their faces over from one guy to the other guy. They have completely <laughs> sure. different body types. They're different heights. There's no way you would ever mistake them for the other guy ever in a million years. It was totally stupid. I'm sorry, but this isn't Face Off. This is... Face Off. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't face off. This is uh, the evil clergyman, and yeah. uh, it—it's a dream that Lovecraft recounted to a friend, it and I—I yeah. I, I feel kind of underhanded reading it and even discussing about it because I'm sure Lovecraft wouldn't have wanted us to do that. Yeah, I know he would have massaged out. I mean, he would have turned this into some kind of actual plot of some kind that 
made sense or yeah. at least had more characterization. But I see that concealedly evil-looking thing is why I called it the evil-looking thing. <laughs> that was on the brain. But, yeah, but why don't we jump into the next story? Yes. When the state highway to Rutland is closed, travellers are forced to take the Stillwater Road past Swamp Hollow. The scenery is superb in places, yet somehow the route has been unpopular for years. There is something depressing about it, especially near Stillwater itself. Motorists feel subtly uncomfortable about the tightly shuttered farmhouse on the knoll just north of the village and about the white-bearded halfwit who haunts the old burying ground on the south, apparently talking to the occupants of some of the graves. Not much is left of Stillwater now, the soil is played out and most of the people have drifted to towns across the distant river or to the city beyond the distant hills. The steeple of the old white church has fallen down and half of the twenty odd straggling houses are empty and in various stages of decay. Normal life is found only around Peck's general store and filling station and it is here that the curious stop now and then to ask about the shuttered house and the idiot who mutters to the dead. To me, uh, that seems just like a do-over of the Dunwich opening. It's very similar. That's kind of a setup, that opening to what essentially is a group-told story. Mm -hmm. This is very similar to In the Vaults or one of these kind of cheap, gothic, morbid humor pieces that Lovecraft has written. Right. Some people call this a self-parody, right? Yeah. I don't know if it's a self-parody as much as it is just a, to him it's a joke. I suspect, I think this was the last thing that he ever did for Hazel Heald, and I'm not sure, there's some question of whether or not he actually ever got paid. Mm-hmm. And so he might have written this, she asked him to write this story, and he decided to make it funny. You didn't find it funny, right? I didn't find it funny. I mean, it's it's weird, and people say yeah. obvious things, but it didn't it didn't make me laugh or even amuse me, really. It was just kind of, seemed stupid. But the, I don't know, the stupidity of it kind of I, I amused me, although I don't think that was as intentional. He writes things in here that are specific jokes, yeah. I think, the same way that he he wrote jokes in Reanimator. But it's funny, man, when, when, when Lovecraft writes these stories, when he does this stuff for Hazel, mm-hmm. he pretty firmly brings his B game, you know? No bones <laughs> about it. He's just like, when Lovecraft writes a story, it's living on a prayer. Uh-huh. But when he does a revision, it's all heaven is a place on earth. You know what I mean? It's the same song. <laughs> But it's just a little poppier version of it. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to make any new material for you, but I'm just going to whitewash over some stuff I've already got. Even here, like in the second paragraph, he says, uh, one feels the quintessential horror that lurks behind the isolated Puritan and his strange repressions, feels it and longs to escape precipitately into clearer air. I mean, that's just another crib from uh, the picture in the house. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, he, actually, another thing, too, is he uses he reuses a lot of names from his other stories in here. Akeley. From Whisper in the Darkness, mm-hmm. uh, Zenis from Color Out of Space, Atwood at the Mountains of Madness, and Goodenough, which is um, HPL's amateur colleague, Arthur Goodenough. Oh, wow. See, I didn't even think about that when I was going through this. He peppers them in there. So The tightly shuttered farmhouse that was referred to in those opening paragraphs is where all Lovecraft's greatest hits will be playing in this, yeah. <laughs> uh, in this story. Uh, the loungers at the general store, they're the ones that are... It's implied that you're there listening to them tell the story. And uh, they're talking about old Miss Sophie Sprague, whose brother Tom was buried in uh, 86, 1886. Right. And Sophie's never been the same after that funeral. That and the other thing which happened the same day, which we're going to find out whatever the heck that is. Yeah. Um, 
she keeps everything, you know, she's all boarded up in there, and there's some crazy man who comes by every once in a while and shouts at her, right? Yeah, crazy Johnny, Johnny Dow is the guy. Johnny Dow. <laughs> now, this crazy Johnny, he goes out to the graveyard, and he talks to two people in these graves. Yep. One of them is Tom Sprague, who we know died, and the other at the opposite end of the graveyard is Henry Thorndike, who yep. was buried on the same day. Yep, he was the old undertaker. And, and his backstory is he was kind of a failed doctor, but he did lots of studying of strange books and came up with potions and concoctions and newfangled <laughs> embalming fluid. Yeah. It says he's a city fellow from Rutland full of book learning. Read, <laughs> read queer things nobody else ever heard of. And, and I like it. He says mixed chemicals for no good purpose. <laughs> like, around here at least we make methamphetamine. He's just doing it to make his house smell like apple pie. What's the point of that now? There's no good purpose there. <laughs> There's good stuff like that. So uh, we know that um, this failed doctor, he's the undertaker, and he's got a mean, morbid disposition, and he's a secret drinker. He's always he's always getting boozed up. And he also experimented on animals in a way that was against nature and, and scripture. Who could forget the state that collie yeah. dog was found in? I mean, that's a little suggestive. You better give more detail when you fly out with he was experimenting on animals. Well, there's a thing, too, with about uh, Deacon Levitt's calf, where they thought he did something to the calf. Tom kicked Thorn Thorndike's ass, and then they found the calf was fine, and it was a mistake. He had gone down under his enemy's fist. So Tom had beaten on Thorndike because he said that the calf had died, but in fact the calf came back to life. And then that's when they say Tom, of course, was half drunk at the time. So we know we got too drunk. I love that half drunk. He was half drunk at the time. Look at me, I'm half drunk. <laughs> the other half is just a social drinker. <laughs> Uh, well, we also find out that Tom was really mean to his sister, Sophie. Thorndike, you know, he always had a way of doing things behind folks' backs, and he was trying to get in with Sophie. Yeah. Mean and ugly as he was, she was glad for anybody because her brother was such a jerk. So sometimes when Tom would go off to go on his drinking binges, then Henry would get in there and, you know. Right. So uh, one time after um, a big bender, Tom comes back, and there's this raucous that goes on, and... They know that he's drunk. They know that things are bad. She runs over to get the doctor. And then when they come back, Tom is laid out. He's got foam around his mouth. His eyes are staring. And, and people are just like, well, we knew this was going to happen if he kept up on that kind of drinking. Yeah, because he was drinking yeah, he was, a lot. He was on the full drunk. Here it said perhaps it's an ironic fact that Thorndike now, always the enemy, was now the only person who could be of any use to Thomas Sprague. Suddenly the undertaker's there saying, no, nah, I'm going to take care of things for you. There's a joke in here. The doctor, because uh, he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna embalm him. Yeah, the doctor says this. Yeah, because <laughs> well, Henry says Thorndike is gonna, I'll take care of things. You know, I'm gonna embalm him really good, and everything's gonna be fine. And then the doctor makes a joke that Tom's alcoholic career ought to have embalmed him pretty well in advance. Yeah, see, come on, <laughs> he's making jokes. Yeah, that's a one. That's as much as a one-liner as Lovecraft's gonna write. But anyway, uh, he's smiling about this. Uh, Thorndike is. And it's like maybe he's up to something. Something's going on. Now, it's interesting. Up till here, it's sort of been told straight in a straightforward way. But we break in the story, and the narrator says, it's here that the whispers of the loungers grow acutely disturbing. And up to this point, the story is usually told by Ezra Davenport or Luther Fry. So one of those guys is the ones that brought us up to speed. But here, they turn it over to old Calvin Wheeler. He'll take up the threat because, mm -hmm. you know, he has a damnably insidious way of suggesting hidden horror just with his voice. So this is a good portion <laughs> of the story for him to take over. And um, this keeps happening. The people are passing the story from person to person. And you get the impression as the reader, you're just kind of standing there exasperated. Like, when are they going to get to the point? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So Doc Pratt, um, Doc, the doctor that lives next door, Doc Pratt, was, uh, says, yeah, he's definitely dead. He's not alive. But the whole time, Henry is kind of boasting about how great of a 
of a mortician he is and just like, oh, oh man, I, I really know how to embalm these bodies. I got the best fluid. I'm awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, you're so lucky to have me. He says, uh, suppose, says he, some fellow was about to be took with some of them paralyzing cramps like you read about. How'd a body like it when they lowered him down and began shoveling the dirt back? How'd he like it when he was choking down there under the new headstone, scratching and tearing if he chanced to get back the power? but all the time knowing it wasn't no use. No, sir, I tell you it's a blessing Stillwater's got a smart doctor as knows when a man's dead and when he ain't, and a trained undertaker who can fix a corpse so he'll stay put without no trouble. I like it after that that uh, Doc Pratt, he didn't like what he was talking about, even though Henry did call him a smart doctor. <laughs> He's complimenting <laughs> Yeah, it's like, well, yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty smart. No, all right, I thought it's like In that paragraph, though, too, there's also an implication that um, Thorndike had been giving Johnny Dow drugs. Well, Crazy Johnny pops uh, pops in and he says, hey, you, you know, he's got holes in his arm, just like the ones that you leave in my arm when you give me stuff that makes me feel good. <laughs> so it seems that Thorndike, the Undertaker, has been giving some kind of drugs to his crazy brain-damaged sidekick. And also some kind of drugs some kind of a, this embalming fluid. Well, then there's this cr- stupid, crazy scene here, right? So Tom's body's laid out. Thorndike's going to give him the embalming fluid. When he mm-hmm. he puts the embalming fluid in there, uh, the body jerks up. And then the doctor's like, now I've seen, you know, when muscles begin to stiffen, I've seen dead people move before. <laughs> no big deal. But the strange thing is, is that when Tom sits up, he kind of <laughs> wrestles with Thorndike a little bit. <laughs> he grabs a hold of the uh, yeah. syringe and he, he jams it into yeah. Thorndike's arm. So a little embalming. Yeah quote-unquote embalming fluid gets into Thorndike. And then, you know, Crazy Johnny goes, that's what you give that dog when it got all dead and stiff and then it waked up again. Now you're going to get dead and stiff like Tom Sprague is. Like, it's, I don't know, man. This reminded me of like an episode of Dark Shadows or something like that. Everybody's so simple and... I, I was laughing. I was entertained. Uh, that was so so stupid when that happened. Yeah, I, but it, I don't. It just doesn't come off as funny to me when I was reading it. I was just like, "This is dumb." It's just, the the characters are so oblivious to what's going on. They are. That I, I understand it's absurd, but I don't find humor in the absurdity of it. All right. Okay. Well, I do. And listen, why don't we just plow to this ridiculous conclusion? Basically, uh, another a guy who was a small boy at the time of these events picks up the tale from here because. It's getting far more disturbing, right? Yeah. Basically, they they take Tom's body, they lay it out for the funeral, and the Undertaker's attending, and strange things are happening there, right? Like, the Mm -hmm. Undertaker keeps feeling Tom's pulse, even though he's dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's giving him a few more shots of embalming fluid. And uh, obviously, the Undertaker's feeling his own arm where he got shot occasionally and seems a little nervous about. And there's a lot of uh, ink shed here on this reluctant, uh, or this uh, atmosphere, amongst the funeral goers because you know? it's a big crowd that's here to to see this guy off and they keep saying how lifelike the body looks wow they did such a good job he looks like he's alive still but this guy was a drunk bastard how come there's a record-breaking crowd at the funeral for him i don't know well they said he was good looking they said he was a good looking guy oh that's so maybe, right yeah. you're right he was a handsome guy so maybe he had a lot of cheap charm you know he's one of those guys yeah right right people you know people assume that now that tom's out of the picture that sophie's gonna just go off with this undertaker thorndike but but she seems to have this slow disgust building as she's yeah. watching him during the funeral that's important too so they sing some songs they, they they wheel the organ out there's this whole funeral scene johnny of course is uh is talking to the corpse 
which is freaking everybody out. Mm-hmm. And I think they, they booed him at some point. Yeah, well, he says mean stuff to the corpse because uh, Tom picked on him. So he's just like, ha ha, you're, you know, too bad for you. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. And saying things like yeah. that. Oh, here it is. It says that devil had been handsome in his day. <laughs> uh, oh, and, and then they, they repeat a scene from out of the eons, basically. Just blow it. Luella Morse, I think, who's a nervous old maid. She comes up to look at the uh, body and then mm-hmm. she gives a shrill scream and faints. Yeah. And it's because its eyes are open yeah. a little bit. And somebody says to the, to uh, Thorndike, hey man, you shouldn't have been bragging so much about being such a good undertaker because his eyes are open in there. <laughs> yeah. And Johnny Dow goes, he knows, he knows, he can hear all we're saying and see all we're doing and they'll bury him that way. And nobody pays any attention to any of that. That's the that's no. the best thing. But no, after that know. happens, everybody's like, hey, what, where, where's Thorndike? And Thorndike is on the floor as if something has happened to him and he's trying to drag himself up to a sitting posture right because of all the bustle that happened because of her screaming about yeah. the open eyes he, he in all the clamor nobody noticed but he's he's on the ground yeah and then uh, he gets himself up and then he says get me home quick and let me be that fluid i got in my arm by mistake heart action this damned excitement too much wait wait don't think i'm dead if i seem to only the fluid just get me home and wait I'll come up to later, don't know how long. All the time I'll be conscious and I know what's going on. Don't be deceived. As his words trailed off into nothingness, old Dr. Pratt reached him and felt his pulse, watching a long time and finally shaking his head. No use doing anything, he's gone. Heart no good. And that fluid he got in his arm must have been bad stuff. I don't know what it is. <laughs> and that's the punchline of the whole thing. It has to be. I guess, yeah. He tells them, don't, even though it looks like I'm going to be dead, I'm not. Just put me at home and wait, and everything will be fine. <sighs> oh, no use doing anything. He's gone now. Yep. Let's bury him. <laughs> Since he died right there during the funeral, and now there's not an undertaker to preserve him. Yeah. They figured we better bury him, too. There is a ridiculous line here where it says it was a gala day for the funeral fanciers of Stillwater and vicinity. <laughs> the funeral fanciers as if it's, you know, a, a section of the newspaper. Funeral fanciers, get ready. There's going to be a double funeral this weekend. This, it's kind of like Lovecraft's version of a double wedding. We all know where this is going. We yeah. might as well just plow through to the, uh, the end of the story. Uh, here it even comments on itself. It says, and now with what would seem to an outsider the acme of gr- gruesome unconscious comedy, the whole funeral mummery of the afternoon was listlessly repeated. So he knows that this appears funny. Oh, that person's died. They throw him in a coffin. They repeat the whole funeral thing. Yeah. And then everybody gathers and they file out and they leave Sophie alone with the bodies of her brother and her possible future fiance. Mm-hmm. And then she starts screaming, the face at the window, that face at the window, and she runs out. And it's because Johnny's been peering in, looking at her mm-hmm. while she was in there alone with the bodies. Yeah. And he's like, she knows, she knows, I've seen her, and she's talking to him. She knows, and she's going to let them both get buried alive. And of course, nobody listens to him because he's crazy Johnny. Exactly. They, dr- they drag him to a woodshed and lock, and lock him up, up while, this, <laughs> while they bury those guys. And then Johnny, they, when they let him out of the, of the shed, he runs over to the, to the cemetery and, and starts trying to dig out Thorndike. Yeah. And then, of course, Jotham Blake has to grab him, the constable, yeah. and, and they put him in jail, presumably. Yep. But that that's why he's always out there talking to these gravestones. Now, that night around 2 a.m., if I read this correctly, mm-hmm. Sophie freaks out and screams and stuff. And then it turns into a ghost story because they say that one time when Johnny was locked up, she swears that Sally Hopkins was calling on yeah. Sophie later 
and she heard an awful rattling at the windows. And yeah. people tell stories about noises on the anniversary of the day they were buried alive yeah. or about faint shining figures trying her windows and doors yeah. at two in the morning. So there's ghosts. It, 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 I don't, it, and this is some poor writing because I don't understand what's going on. Your frustration that you're feeling right now, the yeah. listener is also feeling because this is how it ends when they're referring to those. Because the townspeople say they didn't ever hear any kind of sounds at all. Yeah. And uh, the person who's telling the story, who at this point, I believe, is Calvin Wheeler. Yeah. Uh, only if he's, you'll only get to hear this part if he's around late enough. <laughs> Probably better if he wasn't there. But what Calvin says is <laughs> Whatever it was was so faint, it might have been the wind if there hadn't been words. I made out a few, but don't want to say as I'll back up all Steve claimed to have caught. She devil. All the time. Henry. And alive was plain. And so was you know. Said you'd stand by. Get rid of him. And bury me. In a kind of change voice. Then there was that awful coming again. Someday. In a death-like squawk. But you can't tell me Johnny couldn't have made those sounds. Hey, you. What's taking you off in such a hurry? Maybe there's more I could tell you if I had a mind. <laughs> In wah, the end, the wah. reader just walks away. Yeah. And I wish I could have walked away at the end of this story as well. So that's what it was. They got buried alive. They were calling out to her at two in the morning. She heard it. Now their ghosts are haunting her. But it's such it's some terrible writing at the end of this. It's so confusing and convoluted. I, I guess Lovecraft just really didn't give a shit. He didn't care at all. When he doesn't care and then all of these weird predilections he has creep into this pulp, I, it, may, it was funny to me. It was funny in how, I don't know if it was funny in the way that he intended. For the most part, I was laughing at the story. But yeah. there were a couple of the jokes I thought were funny. I, you know, he, he obviously intentionally did the thing where the guy says, don't bury me. And then they're like, he's dead. Let's bury him. That was kind of funny. I can intellectualize the fact that it was funny, but it didn't, it actually inspired no laughter. I guess I am trying pretty hard. I mean, it's not like I was on the floor like, oh my God. This is, this was one of those weeks where uh, I, I, I feel bad that I'm doing the show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. This is, I guess when I scanned, I scanned both of these to see if we could squeeze them into one episode. Yeah. And when I did that, I realized they were both complete pieces of crap. But I knew I had to read them. <laughs> but there's a sort of release knowing that, that we don't need to really add anything to the literary scholarship of the evil clergyman, you know. There's nothing to add. And, and I, honestly, I think it should just be kind of left. Let it be. I think the evil clergyman you could have let go. There's really no reason to have published yeah. that. Other than it was in print. I mean, it saw... Readership. It did. No, nobody would probably really care about anything I have, but I should make sure to burn any of my stupid ideas before I die. <laughs> if you've got some bad ideas somewhere on a hard drive, go delete those now. I have entire screenplays of bad ideas. <laughs> I don't want them ever, you know. Destroy them now, Pfeiffer. I've got stories, terrible things, of, you know. Because what will happen, you'll die, and Heather's going to try and make a quick buck or two, mm -hmm. sell those off, boom. Yeah. And then people are going to remember you for your crappy stories. She might not even wait till I'm dead. What? We walk down to the newsstand. It's <laughs> <laughs> the parrot and the superhero by Chad Pfeiffer. <laughs> what? I wrote that when I was drunk. <laughs> I want to know more about that story. <laughs> <laughs> what do we have? Uh, we have another double feature next week, and I couldn't. I can't say anything about the quality of those stories. I really have no idea. I have no idea. But these are with R. H. Barlow. They're two stories: the Horde of the Wizard Beast. And the slaying of the monster. We haven't read any collaborations with Barlow, so I think that that'll be yeah 
a new and, and interesting kind of thing to look at. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I also want to thank our reader this week, uh, Michael Ford, my father-in-law. Thank you so much for coming in and doing this for me and trying to polish the... <laughs> <laughs> the story. You know, for what he had, Michael did an outstanding job. Yes, he did. Absolutely. He, br- he brought it home. He brought it home. I would not have walked away had he been telling me no, no. I want to thank our uh, web guru, who we've uh, kind of neglected this year so far, Mike Mann, yeah, for I know. doing all of our back end stuff. Mike's been doing a great job on the site, and he also has some wonderful designs for you to check out over in our Cafe Press store. That's cafepress.com slash hppodcraft. You can get all kinds of awesome t-shirts. I bought all of them. You're, you're styling them. You've, uh, on Facebook, yeah. if you go to our Facebook page, which is yeah. uh, hppodcraft. Yeah, facebook.com slash hppodcraft. Yeah, I have a couple pictures on there. And I'll probably take some more, too. I've got a few more of the shirts. I've got the cthulhu shirt. Also, I want to thank our sponsor, um, The Tome of Horror, The Collected Dark Fiction by David Maurice Garrett. Great stuff. Pick it up at Amazon. You will not be disappointed and enjoy his semi-Lovecraftian style. Our audience will like it. And you know yeah. when you do buy these things that we ask you to buy, they're not very expensive and they do support the show. Absolutely. Uh, we, we love our sponsors, so give them a shot. And a, a lot of people in our audience are writers, and they know you know it's tough when you're, you're, you're putting these books out there. You want, you want to get people you don't know to read it. You want to get more more interest in it so give david a shot i think it's worth it it's a win-win again you support the show but also get a really cool book yep exactly i'm chad pfeiffer i'm chris lackey and this has been the hp lovecraft literary podcast at hppodcraft.com craft.com